Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Once again, I want to say welcome. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so grateful that you're here today for joining us online. We want to say an extra special welcome to you too, and happy Father's Day uh, to all the dads who are out there. You know, just like Mother's Day, this day has a tendency to be sort of a double-edged sword. Um, for those of you who have had great fathers or maybe are a father, it's a chance to, to celebrate. And then for others who carry a father wound or maybe a longing to be a father and you haven't had the chance to do that in the way that you had hoped, um, it can be a day of, of pain and grief as well. And so wherever you are in that spectrum of joy and sorrow, I just want to say that we, we see you. And I want to echo what you've already heard, that we are so grateful for those of you that are our biological fathers, but also for the uh, foster dads, for the spiritual dads, for the mentor fathers, for the uh, men who serve in our kids' ministry. Thank you so much. We are so grateful for the way that you guide, the way that you protect, the way that you provide, and the way that you love and serve in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And, and here's the thing. I'm, I'm convinced that being a father in our day and our time um, isn't easy. Can I get an Amen. It's not easy. And I think there's a lot of things that push against that. that that's nothing new. Uh, my, my wife was um, sitting on the couch and she was reading a kid's book um, that my youngest son still loves and that I can remember this grouping of books being read to all of our kids when they were little. It's the Berenstein Bears. And my wife was reading this to my youngest son and my, my daughter was sitting there as well and, and I was listening in. And I don't know if you've read those books, but if you have, my guess is that you have noticed that Papa Bear is a complete moron. <laughs> I mean, the guy can't do anything right. I, I mean, he doesn't even know how to camp. I'm like, come on, Papa Bear. You got to step your game up just a little bit. And yet, I would argue that Papa Bear is not alone, that he's in line with Homer Simpson and Al Bundy and Ray Barone and many who come after them and before them who sort of play the part as the doofus dad. And I think in Topane, in broad strokes, that's sort of societally how we view fathers. Their best contribution is to sit on the couch and hold it down while they watch TV. And they can do very little else right. And yet, and yet, the statistics would say that the role of fatherhood is one of the most important in our society at large. That those who grow up without a father are four times more likely to live in poverty. Those who grow up without a father are more likely to suffer from emotional and behavioral problems. Those who grow up without a father are more likely to end up in prison. In fact, 80% of people imprisoned right now grew up without a father. Those who grow up without a father are two times more likely to be involved in early, early sexual activity. And the list could go on and on and on about the way that having a father in the home either causes a person to flourish or the lack thereof sets them up for a life of challenge. And that's just what the statistics show. 
And so I just want to say thank you to all the fathers who are leaning into this calling. And I want to say thank you to all the men and women at our church who are saying, for those kids who grow up with a gap in that space, we want to be the spiritual family that steps in and starts to reverse these statistics on their behalf. Amen? So today I want to look at a passage of scripture that isn't directly about fatherhood. But I do think it lays out a great goal and a great pathway forward for all the fathers in our midst, but also for all the disciples in our midst. See, my goal is always to preach to our entire congregation and to all followers of Jesus, not just one specific demographic. So if you have your Bible, will you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, on Mother's Day, we took a break from our 1 Corinthians series, but that was primarily because the passage that was coming up on Mother's Day was on divorce. And I thought that was a bad idea to preach on divorce on Mother's Day, and so we did a special Mother's Day message. But this passage that we're coming up on in 1 Corinthians 9 actually fits really, really well with Father's Day. See, we're in a, a passage of Scripture and in a chunk of this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul is going and he's pointing out that he goes to great lengths to reach people in Corinth with the gospel. In fact, last week we talked about the fact that Paul lays down some of his own personal rights so that people can hear the good news of Jesus. Listen to the way that he said it in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, this right to be paid for preaching and to be paid for his work as a pastor. But we endure anything rather than put a, what? Obstacle, a barrier, a block in the way of the gospel of Christ. And remember we said that sometimes rights are more powerful when they're surrendered than when they are exercised. And so Paul says, I'm not going to do anything that would put a barrier in between you and the gospel. And then now today, in this passage of scripture we're looking at, he's going to go one step further. And he's going to say, not only do I not build any barriers in between you and the gospel, but he's also saying that like a great hurdler, I'm going to jump over the barriers you've created so that I can bring the good news to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. Are you there? Great, because it's not going to be on the screen behind you. So I hope you have it open in front of you. It says, For though I am free from all, I make myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So just a quick time out. This whole section is about hashtag winning. Okay? And Paul is focused on what it looks like, not just to win arguments, but to win people. And those are two different goals. Yes? Verse 20. He says, here's what I did. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And now listen to his sort of overarching goal. I have become how many things? All things to how many people? All people that by all means I might save some. And so if you were to ask Paul, 
what his focus in his entire life was about, I think he would say, I have been sent on a rescue mission. I've been sent on a rescue mission. And my goal is to do anything short of sin in order to reach people who are far from God. And I, I, I say anything short of sin because I think sometimes people can read Paul and he's going, I've done all things to reach all people. And we can take him out of context and say, Paul went to some pretty um, sketchy places in order to push the gospel forward. And indeed he took steps, but he, notice he doesn't say, to the thief I became a thief, or to the adulterer I became an adulterer. No, he maintains his character and his integrity while he holds out the hope of the gospel. But he does say to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. To like, people who were weak, I became weak. I met them where they were at. And I read through this passage of scripture and I thought about entitling this message, Holy Hypocrites. Because I think that's exactly what Paul's doing. A hypocrite was simply someone who played a part. Someone who acted. And usually it's seen as a negative, but here Paul's going, no, 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 I did that so that I could earn the right to be heard by people who were far from God. Do you know what we call this? There's a word for it. It's called contextualization. Contextualization. Uh, Contextualization is figuring out what a group of people need to see or hear so that they can be open to the message of the gospel. As if to say that evangelism isn't a one-size-fits-all proposition. You can't just pick up what works here and drop it down in Africa and assume it'll work there. Now, the message is the same, but the methodology, that changes. And I think that's really challenging for us. Can we just name that? That we like to lock in a methodology that works for us, and then we say, this should work for everybody. And I think there's sort of two um, binary sides of this pendulum that that Jesus followers often swing to. And on one side, you have, you have separatism. And that's sort of the Benedict option of Christianity, where we create a Christian enclave, and we just all separate from the society, and we go live there. Like, let's have our own music, our own t-shirts, our own coffee mugs, our own, you name it, right? And we're just sort of gonna block ourselves off from the rest of society so that we can live in the purity that God has called us to. You might really highly value speaking truth and remaining strong, but, but man, there's not a whole lot of influence. And then on the other side of that is just the opposite, right? It's followers of Jesus who look exactly like the society around them. The society's like, bravo, wonderful, we love you. And this may look like high sort of doses of love, but very little truth. And I think if we want to be people of influence and impact, which I I think every person in this room does, but especially the fathers in this room, I think we've got to figure out how Paul is teaching us to do, to live in the tension of separatism and conformity, because I think there's a third way. There's a third way where we're unwilling to alienate ourselves from the people we long to reach, but we're also unwilling to lose the distinctives of what make us followers of Jesus. And that's where Paul starts to push in. He says, listen, I do this all for the sake of what? Of the gospel, the good news of the grace of Jesus that I may share with them in its blessings. 
So Paul's going, listen, why do I do this? Why do I engage this tension of separatism and conformity and seek to live in the way of Jesus and influence people, becoming all things to all people? He goes, because I want to be a person that has influence. I want to be a person that makes an impact. I want my life to have ripple effects long after I'm gone for the sake of the gospel. Who's with Paul in that? I am. I am. But here's the deal. Living that kind of life, that kind of living in the tension, is not easy. It's not easy. It can chew you up and spit you out almost immediately. It's why most people choose to live on one side of those binary options. And very few try to engage the tension. See, being all things to all people, there might be the tendency to get caught up in the the slippery slope, right? And just be carried away by society at large. It would be possible maybe to have your external world so consumed with reaching people far from God that you yourself started to drift from him as well. And my guess is, like me, you've seen it happen. You've seen people that started out really well. And then they got taken out. They made some bad decisions that caused them to lose their influence and their impact. My guess is you know people personally that you thought, my goodness, this person is just a person of character and integrity. And then they got wiped out and you went, what happened? And how does that happen? And how can I prevent it from happening to me? See, Paul saw it happen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he goes, like, some have deserted us. Some have left the faith all together. And here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that the weight of influence is enough, is enough to crush a person. And it usually feels like the pressure to hold it all together and the realization that people are depending on you. Let me say that again. The weight of influence typically feels like the pressure to hold it all together and the realization that people are depending on you. And that is a heavy weight to bear, is it not? Am I alone in that? I, think, I hope all the dads out there where you go, yeah, I feel that weight. I feel that weight. I know I do. So in the next section, what Paul wants to do is he wants to tell us how to live under that weight in a way that allows us to carry it and thrive and not just survive. So I sort of imagine verses 24 through 27 of Paul grabbing a cup of coffee, pulling up a chair, inviting you to sit down right across from him and him telling you, here's how I maintain a life where I become all things to all people, but I don't lose my own soul. Here's how I try to engage people with the gospel in a way that allows me to flourish as well. Because I think he wants to prevent casualties on the altar of influence. And we know that for any of us in this room, that can happen. But for influence to increase healthily, character must deepen consistently. In fact, can we all say that together? If you're writing it down, just take a break for just a moment. Let's just all say that together. For influence to increase healthily, character must deepen consistently. See, character is the very thing 
that creates capacity for sustained growth and influence. In so many ways, character is the foundation upon which your influence rests. Because if your character is taken out, then your influence starts to falter with it. Or you might say it like this, if your character fails, your influence falters. And so, if you long to have influence in the lives of people around you, you also must couple that with a commitment to growing in your character. See, character describes the default you. It's it's who you are at your very core. Gordon MacDonald, the... um, author and pastor put it like this. He said, character identifies the attitudes, convictions, and resulting behaviors that distinguish my life. It's like the whole thing, your whole life summarized into one. That's your character. It's what people can expect from you in almost every situation. So in light of that, In light of that, let's just sort of boil this all down. I don't think there's anything more important than your character. I don't think there's anything more important than the person that you are becoming. And so if we're sitting across from Paul and he's got his coffee out and he looks over at us, he's going to start to get very personal. He's going to invite us into his life and his perspective and how he maintains a healthy soul while he continues to have influence. Here's what he said, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So, and would you read this last sentence with me? So run that you may obtain it. And the apostle Paul is using an analogy that many in Corinth would have been extremely familiar with. See, every two years on the Corinthian Peninsula, they would host what's called the Isthmian Games. Uh, On the opposite years, you had the Olympics, and then on the other years, you would have the Isthmian Games. And in it, people competed in things like running, boxing, wrestling, and chariot racing. And so Paul says, listen, you've seen these athletes that show up in Corinth, and they compete, and they go for it, and they run to win a prize. And he looks at the church in Corinth, and he goes, the Christian life, the life of faith is similar to the life of an athlete, to someone who's, who's going for it, someone who's giving it all they have. It's interesting because Paul says um, only one receives the prize. And I think this is where we could push the analogy too far and we could look around a room like this and go, well, so only one of us is getting saved? Like, I gotta run faster than you, right? Like, And I don't think Paul was trying to create a sense of competition in the church at all. What he wanted to do was wake the church up. He wanted to say back to them, like, your life matters. The way that you live out your faith matters. And I think he wants to say, like, go hard. Like, go after it. Like, you're running a race. I think one of the characteristics that he would say, if you were across the table from us at a cup of coffee, I think he would say, live with a sense of of intensity. Not a sense of passivity. Embrace the challenge that's in front of you. Don't tap out of it. 
I love the way that the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth put it when he said this, faith in God's revelation has nothing to do with an ideology that glorifies the status quo. Mic drop, right? That the genuine life of faith demands a desire to continually grow with the assumption that we will never arrive this side of heaven. And I think far too many of us just grow comfortable. We just settle in to the monotonous status quo hum of life. And Paul goes, no, come on. This is a race. Run the race with some semblance of intensity. And I think at that point in time, if we're across the table from Paul having a cup of coffee, we might go, hey, Paul, um, you talk a lot about grace in your writings. So is this, just boil it down for us. Is this about grace or is this a race? Which one? And Paul would go, yeah, I, I, I meant it when I said, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, God said, is made perfect in your weakness. <laughs> and, 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 and we might look at Paul and go, yeah, 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 that, that's what we're talking about. Is it about God's grace or is this a race that we're supposed to run, exerting effort with the desire to hashtag win. Which one is it? And I think the apostle Paul would look back at us and say, yes, yes, it's grace. And yes, it's a race. And we have to maintain the tension of it being both. In fact, I think the fact that we struggle with it being one or the other actually shows some of our misconceptions about grace. Because for so many of us, grace is just simply something that we receive that saves us and that we can sit back and enjoy. Praise God for his grace. But the truth of the matter is that grace is meant to empower, not just to be enjoyed. And Dallas Willard would say it like this, that saints use grace like a 747 on takeoff. Come on, that's good. Like it works in them. It moves in them. It's grace that empowers David to step out onto a battlefield with a few rocks to go against a giant. It's grace that allows a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years to work her way through a crowd to reach out to touch the tassels of Jesus. It's grace that allows a centurion to travel, to ask Jesus to heal his son and then leave believing that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he has promised to do. They are running their race, but they're running it by grace. And you can too. You know, I think when we think about this word intensity, there's a picture that often comes to our mind. And my guess is, actually, let's do this really quick. Get it, will you get a picture in your mind of intensity? Okay, close your eyes, think of it. And now I want you to open your eyes. Does it look anything like that? Okay, thank you, Hugh Jackman and Wolverine, right? I think oftentimes this is our picture in our mind of intensity. It's like this gritted teeth, willpower driven, I've got to get the job done mentality. And I would say that Jesus was one of the most intense people to ever live. And I don't think this is what his face looked like. In fact, I think that maybe the look of intensity would look more like this. This is um, the actor who plays Jesus in the great miniseries, The Chosen. 
Like, what does it look like to have a face of intensity when you're intensely chasing after joy? What does it look like to be intense about living the abundant life? What does it look like to be intense about being a faithful husband, a faithful father, a faithful friend, keeping your eye on the ultimate prize. I think this is the look of internal fortitude that's committed to joy. I think this is the picture that we should have in our mind when it comes to intensity. I run the race to obtain the prize and I am going for it with all my might. So here's the deal, you guys. Um, If you're going through the motions of faith, of church, of religion, I just want to say to you, with all due respect, that's so lame. Like God has so much more for you. Like to lean in, to wake up, to run the race that is set out for you. You only have one life. We only have one life. And sure it lasts forever, but this season, right? Is really, really short. Listen to the way that Paul says it next. His next thing is about the internal life. And he says this, every athlete exercises self-control in how many things? All things. And they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. It's really interesting. As I was studying this idea of the athletes back in Corinth, they would often get sponsors And people would sponsor them in order to run and compete in the Isthmian Games. But they had to commit to a strict diet and a strict training schedule if they were going to get funded. So they would have to say, yes, I will live that way because the way that I live is going to impact how fast I'm able to run. And Paul goes, they did all that. They sacrificed, they gave, they did all of that to receive a wreath that was typically made of pine that would be placed over their head and onto their shoulders and that they would get to stand on the top of a podium. But that wreath eventually was going to look like your Christmas tree on January 15th. You know that day when you take it out to your street, the edge of your street, and it's about to go up in flames just because it's so hot here, even in December, right? Or January. He goes, that's exactly what they're going for. And they're living disciplined lives for something that's not going to last. And so he calls Jesus' followers to to more. He he calls them to what he says is (laughs) self-control. I think self-control is the ability to say no to a myriad of options so that we can say yes to the things we want most. And Paul says, listen, I do that in all areas of my life. That means there's no days off, no half-hearted attempts, no hall passes. All areas of his life means that he is bringing his sexuality, his finances, his speech, and all of his conduct under the light of Christ saying, does this line up with who you're inviting me to be? And here's what we would call that. Self-control in all things over the course of a life is what we call integrity. That word integrity comes from the Latin word integer that simply means whole or intact, intact. It's self-control in all areas is a life of integrity. It's obedience before the Lord when absolutely no one is watching. And at this point, 
I wanna put my coffee down on the table and I wanna look at the apostle Paul and I wanna say, hey, look up at me for just a second, Paul. All things? All the time? Like no glitches? No, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And I think what Paul would say is, no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. In fact, in other places he wrote, not that I've already obtained all this or that I've been perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul would be the first person to tell you, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect yet. I'm still growing. I'm still maturing. My character is still being refined. And so we would say back to Paul, okay, well, if that's not what integrity is, then what in the world is it? If it doesn't mean we're perfect, what does it mean this side of heaven? And I think Rich Viotas, the great author and pastor, captured it so well when he said, integrity is not about living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. And to that I add my yes and amen. Integrity and self-control aren't about perfection. They are about pursuit. And I think the pursuit could be really summarized into very general categories. And I think they're sort of like um, pedals on a bike. Where if we live out these two things, we will continue to grow in our character and in our integrity. Here's the first pedal that we have to be willing to push down. Confession confession. Because here's the thing, you can't move towards growth if you're pretending to be perfect when you're not. You can choose pretending or you can choose growing, but you can't live both. To say it another way, we can't heal from what we continue to hide. We can't become people of integrity if we are pretending to be something that we are not. I always describe confession as two things. Number one, it's the platform to be honest. Confession is the gift, and it is a gift that at any point in time, I can come to my good father and say, this is how I've blown it. This is how I've messed up. And you already know it and you still love me, but I just want to get it all out in the open. This is how I failed you. It's the platform to be honest. And second, confession is the pathway to come home. It's the reality that there is never a barrier between you and Jesus if you're willing to be honest. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. And so that's the first pedal that we have to be willing to push down. And here's the second pedal that we have to be willing to push down. It's the reminder that self-control is a gift of the what? The Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Go read Galatians chapter 5. Paul will say self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And then he will say, okay, okay, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So we confess and then we stay in step. We do our best to say, Jesus, how are you leading? What does it look like to be obedient? I want to follow after you. I want your heart. I want your way. And when I mess up, not if, but when I mess up, I'm going to confess quickly, and I'm going to come back to a posture of abiding. And so here's my encouragement to you, friends. If there's any area of your life, your sexuality, your finances, your relationships, your attitude, your anger that's out of alignment with the way of Jesus that is integrity, name it. 
Bring it before him. Confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive. And then say back to him, my intention is to, by your power, abide and obey. And then, here's the thing. And then, we repeat the cycle for our whole life. And as we do, we grow more and more to become people of integrity. And here's the third thing we see. So he addresses intensity, he addresses integrity, and then listen to what he says next. He says, so, so I do not run, what? Aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, which is actually sort of a funny image, right? Like a boxer just in the ring, just swinging at nothing. So I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching, to others, I myself should be disqualified. That, that word aimless, it's translated aimless in our English translation. In the Greek, quite literally means out of sight or uncertain. As if to say that I don't run as somebody, I don't live as somebody who's lost the plot. I don't live as somebody who's focused on a bunch of trivial things while I miss the, the main thing. I haven't lost sight, Paul says, of the things that are most important in my life. And if, um, if you think that as a pastor on Father's Day, I'm going to miss the chance for alliteration in this one, you're wrong. Because here's what Paul's saying. Um, I'm running with a sense of intentionality. I'm running with a sense of intentionality, with a sense of focus. And I think one of the reasons it's really good for us to revisit passages like this is because, listen, you guys, part of being human is, part, is drifting from even the things that we long for most. It's waking up one day and going, gosh, how in the world did I end up here? And usually it happens over a course of time and of course of really small decisions. See, I, I think of it like this. It's sort of like going to the beach on a day where the current is really moving. Like you walk out and almost immediately you start to feel yourself getting taken down the shore. And you focus on the shore. And when you drift too far, you swim in, you walk down the shore and then you go back out, right? But then there are other days that are just glorious. And you could be out there for 45 minutes or an hour, catching waves, swimming, and enjoying it. And what you don't sense is those little movements pulling you further and further and further down the shore. And then after a period of time, you could look in and go, where am I? And see, life, it feels like, who am I? How did I end up here? What does it look like to regain my footing? See, drift happens. I love the way that the great scholar D.A. Carson put it. And this is a sort of lengthy quote, but I'm committed to reading it to you at least once a year. So here we go. This is my uh, 2022 reading of this. And I, I think it's important. Here's what he says. Please listen. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. No, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness 
and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. And it's a poignant, poignant point that he's making. Number one, you will not accidentally wake up one day and go, wow, I am a person of deeper character now. You won't wake up one day and go, you know what? I have become a disciple of Jesus and I don't know how it happened. No, no, those things, if you long for those things, then you've got to be intentional about chasing after them, about building that into the rhythms of your everyday life. And you may not see progress right away, but over the course of days, weeks, years, and eventually decades, you will be able to look back and you will be able to say, Jesus, by your grace and by your mercy, you have grown me. But I think if we're going to look back and see that, there's a few shifts that we have to make. And I'm going to fly through these, okay? Here's three. Three. Number one is that I believe we have to move from being divided to being devoted. Let's just be honest, you guys. There are a lot of options about what we can spend our time, energy, money, and focus on in our day and our time. But I don't know about you. I want to get to the end of my life, and I want to be able to say what the Apostle Paul said. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. But I think if we're going to get to that point in our life, then at some point, hopefully early on, we have to get a vision for what it looks like to get to that place. We have to have a picture in our mind and our heart of the people that Jesus is inviting us to become. And then we have to organize our real everyday lives around becoming, by God's grace, those kind of people. Because it's not going to happen by accident. So here's the thing. Do you have a clearly articulated, maybe even written down vision of who you long to become? I think that would be under the category of, I do not box as one beating the air. But I'm intentional. I love the way that Annie Dillard put it. She said, how you spend your days is how you spend your life. It's true. Here's the second shift. Here's the second shift. I believe that we have to move from being entertained to engaged. From entertained to engaged. And, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to, on my deathbed, I don't want to look back and I don't want to think, gosh, I spent a lot of my time slash wasted a lot of my time liking, swiping, and clicking on things that, didn't add absol- that added absolutely no value to my life. Like if, I, if I'm going to get there someday, I, I need to delete the app today, right? I, in, his, in his novel, um, prolific novel, Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace painted a picture of a distracted frame of mind. And in this uh, book, he he writes about this movie that's so fatefully entertaining that everybody becomes drooling zombies when they watch it. And in the book, in the book, the big questions, see if this sounds familiar, in the book, the big questions of life are replaced by entertainment. And I thought to myself, I, I feel that drift happening where we are pacifying ourselves, where we are amusing ourselves to death, 
where we are entertaining instead of being engaged. And so for all the fathers out there, I just wanna, I wanna call you out of, if you've been drifting in this, I wanna call you back to being engaged with your family, with your spouse, if you're married, with your kids, at your job, at your church, in your friendships. I wanna call you to be engaged. We do not want to drool and entertain ourselves to the end of our lives. Can I get an amen? Let's pursue God with passion. Let's pursue people. Let's love extravagantly. Let's not look back with a series of regrets. And then finally, and this really leads to this point, I think we need a shift from resume thinking to eulogy thinking. And I owe this point to uh, New York Times columnist and author David Brooks. He writes about this. I think it's in his book, Road to Character. Man, it's so easy to live for the resume. The, the letters behind our name or in front of our name, the office that we have, the perceived influence that comes with a title. And yet, I think what's really important to all of us is not resume, but it's influence. And influence can be measured not by how many letters are behind your name or how many things you've accomplished or how many jobs you've had and the position that you have risen to. Influence is only measured by the way that your character rubs off on the lives of the people that you love most. And that's the invitation is to live for that, a movement from resume to eulogy. I love the way that Paul puts it in this passage. It's all over this passage. I mean, he's going like, one day I will stand before the throne of God. Will I receive the quote unquote prize, an imperishable gift, or will I be, and he adds a sense of weightiness to the conversation, or will I be disqualified? Will I be disqualified? And each one of those words is breaking us out of a temporal existence that we often get lulled into and reminding us there's something so much bigger and something so much more that we are invited to live for. And here's the thing, I'm not so concerned with what people will say about me after I'm gone, but I am concerned about what Jesus will say about me when I'm face to face. And here's the truth, here's the truth. If I and you live focused on what Jesus will say to me, to us, when we are face to face, then what people will say about us will take care of itself. This word disqualified, like I said, I just, I, I, I studied it, I read it, and I went, gosh, Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to explain this away without entering into the I want to sit with that one. I want to feel that one. And I just sense the Lord saying, Ryan, I think you've seen that. You've seen that all around you. you. You know, you know that we are all, we are all one bad decision away from losing the things that we long for most. And Paul wants to just lean across the table from us and look us in the eye. And he wants to say to us, run the race that's set out before you. 
chase after Jesus, keep the things that are most important, most prominent in your mind. Please don't hear him saying that you have to earn anything from God. No, he is a good father. He is full of grace and mercy, abounding in steadfast love. He is slow to anger. He loves you, not a future version of you that somehow gets it all together. He loves you as you are, where you are right now. He's a good father and he calls you his beloved sons and daughters. Okay, so, so let's put that to bed. And I, I just, I'm so grateful for so many in our church who are living that out, living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus and passing it on to the next generation. I'm so grateful for the way that my dad lived this out and has lived this out faithfully. He is a person of, uh, of integrity. He's a person of intensity in his own way. And he is a person of intentionality. And I am so grateful because he has modeled for me the truth that the person you become will determine the quality of life you live. Both now and eternally. So let's set our gaze on saying, God, we want influence because we want people to know your love. As dads, we long for influence and you have positioned us to have it. But we know that for our influence to grow, our character has to deepen. So God, make us people of intensity and passion. Make us people of integrity and self-control and make us people of intentionality, knowing that we only get this one life and let's live it for his glory to the full. Amen? Let's pray. So Lord, we say thank you for the example of all three of these characteristics that you've set. By the power of your spirit, would you stir in us, make us, mold us, shape us more and more into people who look like you. Lord, for all the fathers in this room and the weightiness of that influence, Spirit, strengthen us, we pray. For the ways that we've fallen short, we confess, but we refuse to live in failure. God, we're gonna choose faith. We're gonna choose that, to believe that you are who you say you are, that your grace is sufficient for us on our worst day and on our best day. Your grace is sufficient for us. So we're gonna continue to abide and move forward. We're gonna continue to be people who pursue self-control and to live with a focused intentionality, knowing that you wanna do something great in and through us. And we just wanna say back to you, we're open. We're open. Move, work, have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.